hey everybody it's been forever but this is episode 36 ryan and i are back and i wanted to have on this show joel marshall and i was just on his lunch therapy show recently oh yeah loved you so much yeah that i was like come come, come over right. to my house and play like <laughs> i love it And you are an actor, comedian, um, uh, like you on, you've done, you do so much stuff. You do your show mm -hmm. every Friday. That's just one podcast, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm looking forward to getting into all this. And we also started to, you know, just sort of get into that sort of life conversation, which is my favorite. Yeah. And uh, we'll probably do a little bit of that here, but welcome to the show. Thank yeah, you. I'm such an honor to be here. I, uh, when you were on my show, it was just so wonderful to have you and have your energy and, and just all of your power come to Thank visit you. us. And uh, Thank Matt you so Wright put us together. Yep. So that was so cool. And he's such a dear friend of mine. It's really yes. a gift. He's wonderful. Um, and I'm loving synchronicity lately. And so I'm, this is kind of part of rolling with it. You know, it's, it's the magic. Yeah. Um, but I'd love, so tell us, give us some of your background. Like we started to get into like the world of a comedian, but you also are an actor. Yeah. Um, I'd just love to know your background in history. Well, I, you know, I grew up in Edmonds, Washington. Uh, my dad is an artist. Um, he's a metalsmith. So he works Ooh. in mainly like silver and gold and, and uh, works with hammers. So, um, yeah. And he was a teacher at the University of Washington as well. And he taught alongside some really great people like uh, George Sudakawa and um, Chihuly and uh, oh, wow. yeah, some, some great artists. Um, and he's a wonderful, he's one of the pro most um, prolific silversmiths in the world. And wow. uh, yeah, so I, I always, my highest attainment in my mind was to be some kind of artist. Oh because yeah. Because I had this dad and and my dad was like uh extremely dedicated to his work. He was from Pittsburgh. He didn't have a kind of he had a very um blue collar sort of way of going about it, <laughs> which I appreciate, but he was like he you know, it was all about him making his own work. He never had other people make his work. Um he would design it himself, he would make it and it was not like I don't think it was an easy career to embark on. Yeah. Um, but he was a, a big role model to me. Growing wow. Up. Growing up actually around a house with artists. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's That's got to feel well. So funny. My dad's from Pittsburgh as well. Oh, really? He grew up for a time in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Oh, wow. So he's got an e a bit of an East Coasty flavor yeah. in there, which yeah. I always appreciate. But yeah, did it, I mean... That's kind of rare, I think, to actually grow up in a household where one or more of the parents are actual artists. Like, what was that like? Well, I used to tell my friends that he was an accountant or a fireman <laughs> or anything I could tell them because when I said he was a metalsmith, they were like, they just what? didn't understand what I was talking about. And we had a big metal robot in the front of our yard, oh, wow. uh, which is now a Pokemon stop, apparently. Uh, Pokemon, it? Yeah, it's a Pokemon stop. But uh, it's it looks like a... Uh, an imperial walker is what the Pokemon stop says. Oh, um, but wow. it, it's just a giant rusted bolt of a thing. And so my friends would ask me like, 
why do you have that in front of your yard? <laughs> and I'd be like, it's I, so I would come up with a reason. I told my friend it mowed the lawn. I said, nice. yeah, it mows the lawn at like 4 a.m. And, you know, sometime that he couldn't possibly see it doing it. And apparently he told his mom. <laughs> and uh, then the mom confronted me. And it was, uh, it was pretty embarrassing. Yeah, she's like, you know, Jeff says that your um, sculpture mows the lawn. Is that true? And and Jeff was there. Jeff uh, Prinz was over there saying, yeah, Joel would never lie to me. He wouldn't lie to me. And apparently I did lie to him. <laughs> the tiny lie. A tiny bit. So, yeah, it wasn't like something that we really had a lot of. I didn't know a lot of people whose parents were yeah. sculptors. And my dad would be out in the front of the yard, like watering the rocks, watching how the water falls on the rocks because he was going to make a fountain. Uh -huh. And my my other friend came over and was like, Mr. Marshall, they're not going to grow. <laughs> <laughs> Let me help you. <laughs> <laughs> Let me help you. There's something wrong here. But yeah, so it was super inspirational for me to have somebody like that yeah. around. Well, so, yeah. I could, I mean, I could hear what you're saying too, though, when you're like, my family does a creative unusual thing, like not the norm, right? Like yeah. sometimes for a kid, I feel like that can not be a good thing. Like I just want to be normal. But later you're like, oh, now I realize how cool, yeah. like, cool that is. Yeah. Yeah. My family was not, I mean, my dad was musical, but I didn't grow up with my dad. So that, it, uh, I don't know like <laughs> why we, it's an interesting that it triggers all the same. Yeah. Like, uh, regardless of whether or not maybe you grow up around it. I don't know, Ryan, if you grew up in a creative household or. Not not very creative. No, I mean, they're more creative now. Like none of my mom's in retirement. She paints oh, all yeah. the time, you know. Yeah. So it's nice to see. Yeah. yeah, that's true. My mom, when she was alive, she like later it was more hobbies, you know, like quilt making and things like that. But I just think it's I think I used to always fantasize about wishing I had grown up and with at least like parental figures who could weigh in on it. <laughs> you know, or have some sort of guidance or a bit, you know. It's not as um, great as people think, though, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there's also, my dad was also a professor at the University of Washington in, in, in sculpting. And so he had very high standards for things. Oh. And so a lot of times I just felt like I just wasn't good enough. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. I really, I, yeah. I would, I would draw something and then he would draw it and I would Ugh. just be like, oh man, I can't do that. And, uh, you know, and also we'd look at art, you know, we'd say, or even like architecture, we'd be like, oh, I really like that house. And then he'd be like, oh, well, it looks like a pile of cardboard, you know, it was really like Rough. high standards for yeah. things. And so it's, you start to feel like maybe you'll never achieve that kind of thing. I would have never gone into sculpting because well, it was just kind of like his thing, you know? Yeah. Well, every time your opinion gets like kidnapped by someone else, like at a pair, you know what I mean? Like, that's not yeah. okay either for a kid, like ha get to have your opinion, not yeah. have it like uh, dismissed, you know, mm -hmm. that's a thing. It, it is a little bit of a thing. Yeah, yeah. And well, I was I into music and, and acting and movies and things like that, and, which was maybe not considered real. I mean, you know, the, the movies oh. and acting seemed considered really an art. Okay. More of like pop culture kind of thing. Um, and oh. so I didn't, you know, I, I never really felt like, I don't know. I never really felt yeah. like I was being an artist necessarily or uh, was in the right place. But I, what, what I knew was I had this huge passion for that 
I had a yeah. huge passion for music and a huge passion for acting. And I um, didn't have anybody around me that was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Like that you continued on anyway. I remember you'll laugh. Like I have a UW story about singing. Um, uh, I think I took one class from a singing coach really? there. Oh, only one. Oh because I went in and they have you try out. And his comment to me was, oh, you have a pop voice. Oh, and it man. was so condescending. So well, and I was like, I do not respond to condescension at yeah. well at all. No one in Seattle does. though. <laughs> no one does. No one should. No one should. Yeah. But I remember I was like, and I'll be leaving because yeah. I had, I, I mean, I always have respect for it. I would have loved to learn, like, uh, be trained operatically like I would that would have been amazing to do that but I was like I'm not going to be made to feel like shit like as yeah. I'm learning yeah I just I wasn't I wouldn't I was always an automatic for somebody note. to put you in a box like that is just so uncool like let's what kind of a teacher would do that you know oh well, you have I, a pop yeah. voice and I also think too no, I have like, a voice and it comes out of my voice. body and it's not pop yeah. or and a pop jazz voice, or anything <laughs> pop voice pays pretty well so that's yeah, it's, it's also yeah, yeah. oh I you're am. gonna make money uh yeah how it, terrible. I'm not going to train you then. I did just fine thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but I also think great teachers can also like have open, can hear the voice, right? Like they could, whether that person sings a current way, mm -hmm. they could hear, I, I feel like a good teacher or professor could be here like, oh, I can hear the strength in your voice. I can hear where it could go um, or, you know, just a no voice at all. So just to return like, oh, you're going to criticize your, the perceived style that you obviously don't have any respect for. Mm -hmm was lazy to me yeah like i instantly had no respect for that teacher yeah um i think that's uh, a problem sometimes in going to university for an art like that mm, is that yeah. sometimes people in the my dad wasn't this way because he was working all the time and was in the smithsonian and all over the place but um sometimes people have decided to um go to teach at the university because it protects them from ever having to really make a living at it because they can make their living yeah. teaching. Mm -hmm. And yes. so sometimes they resent people that are going to maybe um, venture out and make money at it because it's maybe something they were not able to do, which is, it's a hard thing to say. And I, I'm not a big fan of the, the those who can't do teach because I don't think that's true. I, yeah. But I do think that there are is sometimes they guide you in a way that is like not pro survival well and how vulnerable a place to be like if you have no idea about that like all the things a teacher or someone could perpetrate on you mm -hmm. and you know like you're ready and innocent and you don't know and like that's that's a shame if i know what you're saying like i don't think all if teachers are like that but yeah. who knows what was behind that person's and there are yeah behind that person's decision there yeah. are, I want to say that there are great teachers who don't necessarily do the art form that, that you know, they, mm -hmm. they are great teachers. And I, I totally um, believe that. And I, I like it when somebody actually can focus on that, just yeah. the craft that they're trying to make people get better. And sometimes by the same token, there are people that are working professionally, but maybe they're not working professionally as much as they want. And they're teaching you. And they also have that same kind of resentment. It's just, it's just bad business if you're a teacher with resentment. <laughs> and you have to keep that in check, I think. I think you have to keep that in check and keep your ego in check when you're teaching. Yes. Yes. Um, bad business. I just love that. I also <laughs> didn't like my French teachers either. Like uh, they were so, I mean, condescension is not my thing. So I, I, you know, like I spent a couple of years taking French and got the worst grades ever and 
finally yeah. made myself go to France to learn because I was like, there's way. no, I'm not going to learn this way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was so terrible. But look at what little punk rockers we are. We're like yeah. just flipping the finger at anybody. <laughs> also that sort of like Gen X sort of like, fuck yeah. you. Like, I'll go do it myself, you know, DIY. Like, I'll figure it out. Like, I up. know there was some <laughs> resentment in all of us because we were felt like feeling like we were ignored. I mean, I was feeling like that growing up in the Pacific Northwest. Like, yeah, I mean, I had, had people that would call it Oregon, Oregon territory. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like people yes. really did not know what that was. And if you went and I would sometimes go to the East Coast or we travel or whatever, and people just really didn't seem yeah. to know who we were. I think the the most exciting thing was when it was we were Seattle was on Scooby Doo, an episode oh, of Scooby Doo, yeah. yeah. where they had the underground Seattle and the Space Needle, and oh my God! And then one time, Seattle was in the show Emergency, and it was like the biggest deal because it was like, oh my God, they they recognize us as, as as if we exist. Okay. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is you yeah. we talked you and I talked on your podcast for like about the Seattle scene and the state of mind of people who grew up here. And, yeah. you know, I just was saying, I was like, I don't think anybody thought anyone was ever going to be looking. You know? No, we were like, <laughs> screw you. I'm going to take my ball and play in my backyard. And mm-hmm. that's going to be good enough for for me. And you just, just mm-hmm. go away. Yeah. <laughs> so I felt like there was a little bit of that, you know? Well, now just like now look at Seattle anyway. So yeah, Seattle's, Seattle's Seattle. a completely different place. Look at the monster wow. we've created. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> I, yeah. I blame Paul Allen. I'm sorry. Rest in <laughs> peace, but Paul if we're going to blame somebody, we can pick. Yeah. yeah. Microsoft and Paul Allen. Um, Bill I Gates. blame Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I think. You, you oh, yeah. Throw him in there. Together. Yeah, throw him in there. I might even say Starbucks a little yeah. bit, too. Yeah. Like, Howard Schultz, for sure. Howard Schultz. Okay. We've just slammed all of them. So much yeah. for our funding. And they care a lot. They're listening and they yeah, care. They're so concerned. Yeah, we just lost our biggest fan. What does Joel oh. Marshall think about me? Oh, he'd be awake at night. Exactly. Well, he orders a lot of Amazon stuff, so I guess <laughs> guess we're okay. It's gonna be a dent in my business. No kidding. Yeah. Well, yeah. how did you um how did you get started in acting? Did acting come first and then comedy, or was it kind yes. of both? Um, I was always into comedy just as a, an improv. I didn't even know what improv was. I didn't have actors around me growing up. It's not like I grew up in, in Brooklyn or something like that. You know, I grew up in Edmonds, Washington. There were no actors around. Apparently Anna, Anna Ferris comes from there as well, but there are not many, not many actors. So we did our own sort of street acting, I guess. We would put on these weird shows, you know, we'd go like there was a, there was a parade for Rosalind Sumners, who was a skate, skater, Olympic skater from our, our town. And so we went down and got into the parade, but we drove like a big, my friend's big, um, his parents' car. And uh, it was a big Lincoln, big brown Lincoln. And we got in there and we had masks on and we would throw sardines out to the kids. And we had all these signs that would say, you know, uh, it's a Ros kind of day. And we just do kind of ridiculous, like, things we go we go to mcdonald's and we'd order a hamburger and then put it on our head or something like that or turn it upside down and come back and say i you know i got to return this hamburger it's upside down and just (laughs) we had a thing called the myth club where it was like a club it was basically an anti-club anti-click club Mm -hmm. so anybody could join and we had had um, positions. We had the the chief in charge of yogurt production and the hamburger mola. Oh you know, we had yeah, different offices you could hold, and we would meet at the Denny's. Um, but our main thing was to try and confuse people who took themselves too seriously. 
That was our goal. Yes, please. Yes. So we would do really confusing things and uh, just see how people reacted. So we came up with um, this thing where we'd lie face down on the ground because we found that this was the thing that really confused people. Is we would lie face down on the ground. There'd be like two of us or 10 of us and in a, in a public place. And then we just see what happened. And we try and lay there um, longer than it felt comfortable. Wow. And the first time we did it, my friend Scott, Amy, and I, we um, were at a baseball game. There's some kind of baseball game going on. And we went out into right field and we laid face down in right field. Oh, my God. Just to see what happened. And you know what? Nobody did anything. <gasps> they, they played the game. Everything went on. They faced out. And then we got what? up. What? Yeah. Commitment to the art. Yeah. Yeah, it was like, commitment. Just, so just then we be. got really <laughs> into this art form we called face dancing, which later on became planking, which is like a became an okay. international fad or whatever. But for us, it was just, uh, you know, trying to get people to um, see something that makes no sense. Because that was our goal. Do something that makes no sense. It takes a lot of courage to do that, especially at like, I'm I'm serious, like yeah. at the high school or whatever age, like to go do something wacky in your probably small, you know, a conservative, yeah. Yeah. just anything like out, that takes a lot of guts to do that. We Even if it's it. funny. Yeah. yeah. I, I would have joined that club in a hot second. I totally. feel like you Tri-Cities could have used it. Easily. <laughs> probably use it still yeah. <laughs> exactly well and i saw that on your website too and i was like what's this you know it's so yeah. like okay i mean yeah. well I, and i i th i don't know if it's a also a, it like that comes by nature for you but also mm -hmm. i wonder if it comes out of i don't know not every kid is born with the sort of like yeah, this world ain't all that. I'm going to go mess with it a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, like not yeah. everybody's born with that courage or the impetus or, and it's certainly not always like, oh, I just want to cause chaos, like disturbances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's more, I'm thinking wider than right here. I think like, that was the early on uh, urge to perform that we had. Yeah. And we just did it wherever we could. And we didn't really, you know, I, I joined the drama club or tried to like do a play in, in high school, but then I was on the swim team and I never got a chance to do it. And uh, so I just never, I never found that outlet that some people do. And it, I always knew that I wanted to be an actor though, but I just didn't know how that was going to happen exactly. How did and, you, where did you go from there then? Well, I went to the university where my dad taught and I okay. you know, University of Washington. I went to the drama school, you know, and, uh, it's a but good I was, one, isn't it? yeah, it's a very like, good drama. Yeah. school. Very good. There, there, it's mainly the graduate program at the time was really good. Mm. And, you know, uh, lots of great actors have come out of there. Gene Smart and, and, uh, Joel McHale and lots of people. Um, but, uh, I had no idea what I was doing and I felt sort of like, um, an outsider. Like I didn't, I didn't do a bunch of plays in high school and I didn't okay. know about Shakespeare and I just knew I wanted to be an actor, but it was the first time I just kind of said, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. um, I was really scared. And I bet. And um, also I had that kind of idea that if I'm going to be an artist, it's got to be, you know, the greatest oh, thing, yeah. ever, like, real high standards, you know, otherwise it just sucks. <laughs> You're already putting the weight on yourself. Yeah, the weight right? on me, yeah. like heavy. That's the and, start uh, of a and, drug or alcohol problem right there. Yeah, yeah. And the <laughs> and I drank a lot of alcohol because I was in a fraternity, which was weird because I was oh, in a no. fraternity and I was in the drama school and never the twain shall meet. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So I would, people would like, hey, do you want to re rehearse at your house? And I'd be like, no, <laughs> I do not want to do that. <laughs> um, not in front so, of the boys. No. Yeah. So, uh, 
you know, but actually the friends from that fraternity are my long, long time friends. Cool. Yeah. That's so cool. it was not, you know, it was really, a, I made a lot of great friends there, but the, um, the drama school, I did a lot of academics and really learned a lot about the history of theater and, but not, didn't perform as much as I wanted okay. to be performing. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really learn how to act there. Um, I learned how to, how to talk about acting. <laughs> that, so afterwards, after the university, I um, decided that I would audition for the Seattle rep and like all the different theaters oh, that are yeah. in Seattle. Cause there's this kind of a vibrant theater community there. And um, every place I went, they were like, you're 14 years old or you look like you're 12. You should leave Whoa. and come back. And th- at the time, and I don't know whether this is true in Seattle now, I'm sure it's not, but at the time, if you came from New York or you came from LA to perform, which is seems antithetical to the whole Seattle thing. Right. But somehow you were better because oh. you were like a New York actor or you were mm-hmm. an, a Los Angeles actor. They don't like LA, but if you were right. an actor from there, it was like, you're a real actor. Like I, you're on I TV can see that. Cause I mean, they got to sell tickets. They got to like, sell tickets. They're like, Oh, they we got a big t- actor from New York. Yeah. Ethan Hawke shows up. It's like, they're going to sell tickets. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, at the time, I don't know who it was maybe, um, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, it's just a business, but they were like, you, I don't know what we'd do with you. You got to go someplace else. So I was like, You're okay. Like, and I was like, thanks. Wow. <laughs> thanks a lot. I appreciate that. You got to go. <laughs> I think they were just being kind. Um, but to me, it was like more like uh, of a kind of denial of what I was doing. So I, I was like obsessed with John Malkovich. I had seen him. Oh, yeah. I had seen him in Death of a Salesman on HBO or something like that. I'd seen him in, in uh, oh, I found at Blockbuster Video, I got a tape of um, True West which was him and Gary Sinise doing the Sam Shepard play. And it was just like, what the hell is it, are these people doing? Cause it was not what I was doing in drama school. It okay. was like, it was rock and roll. It was dangerous. It was out there. And I was like, where are these guys coming from? And I found out a lot of my favorite actors were coming from Chicago mm. at Steppenwolf theater. Okay. And so my friend, Kevin Sherman was moving to, uh, Chicago. And he said, you want to come? And I said, sure. So that's what happened. I left like in 1989, kind of when things were just happening. Wow. You know? Yeah. 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 Just yeah. happening. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know. I knew that uh, Matt Wright was in a band, which was totally out of the blue to us. Like, what's he doing in a band? Oh my well, God. Cause that those... was, you know, not in a yeah, band I... in high school that, that I know. But no, I don't think so. Well, for those who don't know, Matt Wright was the lead singer of Gas Huffer. Yeah. It was a pop, uh, huge band during huge the grunge era. Yeah. yeah. That, was that, so much, that was such a thrill for us because we were like, here's Matt. All of a sudden, he's this rock star, you know? Right. We were just so delighted by that. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we also had um, Matt Kite and the whole Bolivian army. And, oh, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. So they, they were good friends. And Matt, they were, you know, in the Myth Club. And uh, so that all happened, but I left, you know? And so I, what I did is I went to Chicago and I went to Steppenwolf Theater and I, I went in there. I didn't even tell them I was coming or anything. I just (laughs) went in there and it was a tiny little theater. And I went in there and I was like, hi, I'm Joel Marshall. I want to work here. And there was a guy behind the window that said, 
you'll never work here. He said, John Malkovich did the costumes in the last show. Everybody does all the different jobs. There's an ensemble. And then there's a, at ISU, there's a big competition to see who can be the interns. Damn. So I was like, oh, wow. I was like, here's my number. I had a number because I, we had gotten a phone. It's like, here's my number. Call me when you need me. And they called me that night. Yeah. And the guy who was telling me this quit. He was like what? the box office guy. Yeah. And that guy's like a big director now. His name is Wilson. He's a big theater director. He actually quit there and then went to like England and started. started that night. Um, yeah. Yeah. That night and started directing like the Steppenwolf things like True West and Sam Shepard and all this stuff in England. And he was, had worked, you know, in this environment. So I think it worked out really well for him. I don't know. I, I'll have to get him on my show. But he someday. says to your yeah. face. That to my night. face. You'll never do it, pal. But then you get a call. I love that. That's and so I'm great. already in this kind of world where I don't even know what I'm doing, you know? It's good timing no for both of you guys then. Totally. Yeah. Worked out. Place to be. It worked out for both of us. So I went, I ran the box office for a while, which was like mayhem because this was the most popular theater in the world at the time. They had a, they had on Broadway, they had Grapes of Wrath, which was like a huge popular uh, Broadway production. Plus they had had True West and they had all these famous actors coming out of there, John Malkovich and Gary Sinise and Joan Allen and all these people. Everybody in their ensemble was like famous at this point. So, but the place was still super small and exclusive. So all the rich people were trying to get tickets and they were just really yelling at me. They were just screaming at me. It was like a trial by fire. I thought they were going to break the glass to the box office, you know? Do you know who I am? They were clamoring, clamoring for their theater. And uh, I just had a wonderful experience there. I was there for like two years. I did every job, including I got on stage. Right and, and on. Yeah, it was it was a great experience for me. And they were like my dad in that they were very blue collar actors. Mm-hmm. You know, even yeah. if they were famous or whatever, they were just really down to earth. They were very um, practical, almost too practical at times. Because huh. if they fight on stage, they really fight. Oh. <laughs> and when you're doing eight shows a week. That oh, takes yeah. a toll. Yeah. If they drink, they'd, they'd really drink. Wow. Like John Malkovich was doing True West and he drinks beers through the whole thing, like the whole second act or something. Oh, and uh, he said he realized one day he was in Central Park and somebody tried to mug him and he just like went off on him, like almost killed them or something. Yes. And he said <laughs> he realized he was becoming an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and then they stopped doing that after a while. They stopped because it was just impossible. You can't get drunk every show, you know? Right. Yeah, you're not supposed you to. I mean, you can. Yeah. You could, yeah. But there's a toll. Yeah. Oh, there's purity in it, though. What are you talking about? It's the yeah. purity, maybe. True method <laughs> acting. I got to be drunk yes. every, every episode. Exactly. Right but Chicago was a great place to be, I'll tell you, at that time for theater. Because they had like Second City, a lot of the people, you know, Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert and um, uh, Adam yeah. McKay, who's a great director of all these great movies, like I mean, shows like, you know, he produces Succession and all these different movies and things. They were all there and it was a really interesting community at the time. Well, it's and Chicago had its own like music, Wicker Park, like its own music scene. I remember yeah. touring. So my favorite thing in Chicago was I would literally show up with an extra like suitcase just to go thrifting because down in Wicker Park and below and below or East, 
would be mm-hmm. these humongous like thrift stores and everything it was like a, you find things for like a dollar and just pile up on the things but i remember getting um going to like second city i remember of course like playing clubs like it had a lot going on in it the art institute one of my close friends went to the art institute there mm-hmm. uh, it was cool oh, yeah i really liked being there it was great in fact yeah. um there was so much stuff going on i'd be doing you know a children's show in the morning and then at night I'd be doing some, you know, crazy like <laughs> wacky nude show. Not that I was nude. I wasn't nude. <laughs> but I'd be doing something completely different at night. That's you know? where you draw the line. <laughs> that's where I draw the line. There's no nudity. <laughs> so what did you do after this then? Like that's intense. I, I, well I went to grad school because I think um I just felt like I needed more training or whatever. And the people at Steppenwolf were like, you don't do that. You know. Yeah. But I did anyway. I was like, I gotta I, I think it was something I wanted to prove to my parents or something that I could get like a master's okay. degree. But I went to Cal Arts, which was super interesting, which is a you know, an art school in Los Angeles. Wow. Um where uh it's north of Los Angeles and it is a place that they came up in, with in the seventies and it's all it's arts all under one roof so it's built in this big building that has very um that everything is supposed to interact in fact when they started it in 1970 and it was built by disney but disney didn't want to have anything to do with it in the public eye because they just wanted people to be able to train there and just have ultimate freedom wow so you could walk around nude if you wanted to which you know i'm obviously a nudist so uh, yeah, you keep bringing it up. I, mean, I was yeah, always I keep bringing it up. Yeah, <laughs> you could you could do anything there. In fact, um, they did. Uh, they would you know the art shows. They would like they put a flag on the floor and had a sign in that was on the other side of the flag, which was actually a duplicate of another exhibit someplace else. But the FBI ended up surrounding the place because you had to walk on the flag to sign in. Oh, they did. They put some people in a box one time and just said do whatever you want with us and, and people took the box all around Los Angeles. Like, it was kind of dangerous one time um in the there's a thing called the main gallery uh, where they do art shows and one time there was a speaking of boxes there was a big cardboard box in there and there were little holes where you could look in and there was all kinds of shenanigans going on in there. but it had on the outside it had a list of things you could buy and there was like a door you could go in and it was like Low job, sex. Oh wow! Um, the highest, the most expensive thing was read poetry. You know, <laughs> that was the most expensive. That's the hardest yeah. one. So, yeah. yeah, right. So somebody would read poetry to you for like ten bucks or something. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I enjoyed that, but it was a hard time for me, I must say, because I was um, again feeling like um, I was always kind of flying by the seat of my pants, you know, and yeah. not really knowing, like feeling like not really in the know and uh, sort of on the fringe. And so I um, got a, I got a job at Magic Mountain oh, wow. being Bugs Bunny. What? That was my job, yeah. <laughs> I, got, I, I, didn't, I needed a job because I didn't have a lot of money. And I was like, I'm going to work, I guess, at Magic Mountain. That seems like it's the only thing here really yeah. that I could, and it's open on the weekends only, so it'd be perfect. So I went over there and they gave me a job where I was taking surveys and that was hellish. People coming into the park and you're like, how much money do you make? Oh, I, no. Yeah, people dude, love that. Yeah, people love that. This is how you collect data. This yeah, that's right. So I uh, didn't want to be that person, but I saw Bugs Bunny and I was like, I want to be that. And Ooh. so I got that job. 
Yeah, that's like the opposite of the survey. Everybody likes Bugs Bunny. Yeah, a lot of people would think it'd be hellish being Bugs Bunny, you know, because you're in that fur suit and it's like 105 degrees. But I'm telling you, it was a great time. I was Bugs Bunny for like three years there. But because I had a weekend job, I got a bad reputation because somebody wanted to uh, rehearse on the weekends or something and I couldn't do it. Yeah. And then there was a very small clique of people that were directors at the, in the school and they were in the director department. And so they would, they were the ones that would give you acting roles. Right. So I think I got a bad reputation right in the beginning because of that one day or something like that. And then I hardly got cast in anything. Right. <laughs> That's too bad. And so uh, like they, I got a reputation. I think that I was difficult or something, which I'm not. Oh, please. So, yeah. Anyway, I had a pretty rough time. I always thought I was going to get kicked out of there because they have a thing like at the end of the year where they boot a bunch of people. Like really? They, it's really, I mean, I love that school. It's a great, great time. I don't know. If, I, don't, I can't imagine they do this anymore. It's not but for they, everybody, I would imagine. Like, at the, gotta... uh, Yeah. At the end of the year, they would have these meetings about everybody and they would decide who they were going to cut. Wow. This is like common Survivor. in acting wow. programs. It is like Survivor. And they have you, the whole school, all the students clean the school. Whoa. Clean the school. And at the end, this sounds like a horror movie. At the end, <laughs> in your mailbox, they have these mailboxes, is a letter that says whether you can stay or not. Wow. It's not stressful. That's brutal. Yeah. It was brutal. I always thought I was going to get kicked out. The, the two years. Yeah, that they, everybody did constantly. They can fear. cut you out yeah. after the, in the second year, too. Oh. So, um, yeah. So I always thought one guy, love this guy. There was a guy in the um, class who just did whatever he wanted to do. And he really took this to the, you know, took this CalArts thing to the limit. It's the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he took his letter, didn't even open it, he pinned it to the wall and left. <laughs> <laughs> Nils Holland, that's his name. He's, a, he's like a theater professional in the Midwest. He's just a really amazing guy. But I always remember that, you know, he didn't even like, that's wasn't cool. even curious. He just yeah. pinned it on the wall. I'm sure they this. didn't kick him out. He was a great actor. Yeah. He runs a theater in Omaha, Nebraska now, I think. I love that. I love the Like, I don't need your, pro- I don't need this. You can have this back. Like. Yeah, F you for you can have your judgment just to pay. Yeah, yeah, good or bad. Oh my god, that's crazy. Well, my god, you've been in like so many cool places, like just trying things again. Like, you can't not learn things with all the places you've been in. You know what I mean? What came out of arts? Such an incredible life, um, yeah, you know, with the arts and stuff. The uh, I went to well, I went to Shakespeare and Company, which is in Massachusetts. I want to learn about Shakespeare. Um, and uh, it's that's another just amazing place. It's it's based on this woman, Kristen Linkletter, and also EST training. I don't know if you ever heard of oh, EST. Oh, whoa, yeah. You know, the forum and all that stuff. Yes. These people, like, they came out of that, but they started their own, like, I know, I know. This is like a cult. But this, <laughs> this is like, they took that breathing trick. No, not the breathing. They, Kristen Linkletter was the breathing, but they took some of the philosophy of S, which I had never heard of. And I, they didn't okay. really teach us like S things. Yeah. But I think they were just doing S at some point and decided, hey, let's start a theater company. <laughs> so they started this really intense theater company. Tina Packer, this woman from, uh, she's a, a Shakespearean actor from England. She came over here and she said, I want to start a theater company. There was Edith Wharton's estate, which is, this is in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. So Edith Wharton, you know, had an estate there, a great writer. And so she was, she found the estate was in a complete 
state of disrepair. Mm-hmm. She said, let's fix this thing up and make it a theater company. Wow. And nobody was doing anything with it. So she did, and she's created a historical society and a theater company. And they would actually put on plays of Edith Wharton's works in the salon there. Mm-hmm. And then around on the grounds, they do Shakespeare. And That's it was just cool. an amazing place. And then they'd have a workshop one twice a year, once for teachers, like any teacher, like a math teacher or a French teacher, your French teacher should have gone to this thing. Amen. Because uh, sure. <laughs> would, they would teach them how to act Shakespeare, but it opened up all kinds of things for them as a teacher. Right. And, and these breathing techniques were a lot of what we did, where you do a lot of breathing and really get into your body. And then they would take the Shakespearean text. They still do this, I'm sure. They would drop, they do this thing called dropping in, where they would take the text like I was playing Romeo this summer, that summer, and they would um, just go through every single word of the text. They'd be like, to be or not to be? Two, two. Do you have two feet? What do you have two of? What's two? Two, are you going to lunch? Do you, they would just say all these things as you're, you're going, and you do a two, two, two. And then, then they'd go on to the next word, B, B. Is there a B in your bonnet? B. Is there, are you, uh, to be or not to be? B. You know, they just say, it's Why? really weird. What is it? What's it supposed like, to do? What are they doing? <laughs> it drops. It's a way of dropping. They call it dropping. And it drops the text into you, into your body. Oh. So that every word has all these meanings and connotations. And also you learn the, you learn the text this way. Okay. So it becomes part of your body rather than just an intellectual thing, I guess. And oh, you're doing breathing through the whole. I probably didn't explain it very well. It's a long time. No, ago. I get that. I get that. But, like to get it in your body and to so it's not out here above you. If you watch uh, Blade Runner, the latest Blade Runner, Blade yeah. Runner, whatever, something. Yeah, yeah. They do it in the movie for a moment. Do they? Yeah, and it's because it's somebody was at Shakespeare and Company and they uh, put it in the script somehow. Oh. Put it in a scene. Nice little Easter egg. And I was watching it. I was like, they don't call it that or they don't do anything, but it, it's exactly that I'm technique look for that it. they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's amazing just because I, well, it just seems like it would bring the text, ground it, you know, you'd be grounded in it and in the whole experience as opposed to, because I could really get away from you if you're nervous about doing Shakespeare, right? And the mm-hmm. text that could just remain so far outside of yourself. But if you're like, no, make a home in it. Yeah. Like get in there, make a home and it, become it, like be it. That's, that's so grounding, but uh, also a way to commune. It is a way to commune. And it's also the way she looked at it was um, Tina Packer was that when you're doing Shakespeare, especially outside, mm-hmm. she believes the voice resonates in the body, just like music mm-hmm. singing resonates in the body of the audience. And just like when you watch a, a um, boxing match, your muscles do the twitch of the boxer. Mm-hmm. When oh. you watch Shakespeare or when you watch theater or mus- musicians, your body responds. And your body really responds to sound. So she felt like getting as much, getting as deep in your body as possible, breathing as deeply as possible, getting the words as deeply as possible into your cells you could affect the audience emotionally a lot more oh, I love than, that. than any other way. 
And also the idea of if you've done Shakespeare, there's a point where it just becomes a part of your cells. Like it's not in your brain anymore. You're in, it's in the brain cells. What's that even feel like? Is it, what's that feel like? Well, I have, you know, I have anybody who's done Shakespeare uh, can recite Shakespeare, you know, just out of the blue. Yeah. You know, and, but it doesn't like, I don't think thus with imagined wing or swift scene flies an emotion of celerity. You know, I don't think that, I don't think those words, you know, uh-huh. you, I but just, you just say them, you know, they just come out of your body. You have them. Yeah. But yeah. soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the East and Juliet is the sun. Arise fair sun and kill the envious moon. Who's but sick and pale with grief that thou her maid art far more fair than she. I don't, I haven't said that in so 20 pretty. years, but know it's, it's so there, you know, it's there in your cells. It's so Not, good. You know what I mean? And you kind of have to trust it. It's like, you know, you play a, a, something on the piano. Yeah. After a while, your body plays it and yeah. you have emotions. But having acted it and gotten it into your body, do you automatically feel at home whenever you, like, do you click into an honest, almost private home in your head? Because I know for me, because I write personally. Mm-hmm. So when I sing, you get me, you yeah. know what I mean? Like I, the, I drop into, I'm sharing that thought with you and that emotion automatically by nature, you know, but yeah. having done it, but also that is my nature to want to do that. Cause I'm about, I really like, I want to commune. Um, and so, you know, like people say like, oh, do you ever get sick of the same, doing the same thing over and over again? I'm like, well, it's not robotically like, oh, I'm just, I'm having to sing this song again. It's a story. Yeah. It's an emotion. It's a thing. It's a little piece of me. Do you feel the same way? Like, I do. Like, yeah. I do. And also, you know, I mean, they were saying that about Billy Joel. Billy Joel was saying, you know, every, or maybe it was, no, it was, I think it was Paul Simon. He was saying that as you get older, the songs take on a different meaning sometimes. Oh my God. Sometimes prophetically. You know? Yeah. Like, like, oh shit. Now I see why I wrote that. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 I don't even know how Paul Simon wrote some of those songs when he was so young because they're so, you know, like the, the leaves that are green turn to brown. You know that song? It's yeah. Like, mm-hmm. How does a 20 year old <laughs> real, you know, he's like, I'm t- I was 22 years when I wrote this song. Yeah. You know, the old like, soul. And now old he's soul. singing like I'm, yeah. I was, you know, yeah. And, I, and now he's singing like I'm 65 now, but it won't be for long. You like to understand that at that yeah. age. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it seems like almost proof of reincarnation or something, <laughs> you know, that oh. someone could be such an old soul at that age. For sure. Don't, yeah. don't get me started. Or channeling I or that. I don't yeah. know what that is. I don't know what that is. And I sometimes do. you got to get out of your own way and let the cells talk. You know what I mean? Let the cells yes. talk. Yes. Like that when I was trying, trying to recite Shakespeare, I got in my own way a little bit. It was like, yes. oh, I don't know it. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. I absolutely but I put myself do. on the line and just said, come on, cells, let's see if you can come up with something. But you have to do that creatively as well. Well, I would imagine like when you put yourself in front of an audience, then you've got that body of energy in front of you. Like it takes it takes, quote unquote, effort to stay grounded, like and not get swept away by, oh, what's that person looking at? Or what do I look like? Or, you know, the first like, 20 minutes of me being on stage is wrangling all that. And even the recording studio, it's like, it takes me a good 20 minutes to like, let it go yeah. and just sink in and just be, you know? Yeah. And you're so good at it too. Oh, you are. Thank I mean, you. I've been watching Thank some you. of your concert footage. Cause I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there, 
But um, I watch it online and I'm just like, wow, you just have such a command of, of the audience. And the audience is like, you know, body passing and going on all kinds of crazy <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just so like in it, you know, you were talking about uh, this, some sweaty place where you perform yeah. you know, in one of those interviews. And I was just totally there with you, you know, like yeah. being in a, it's almost sounded like you were in a heart. The yeah. whole place is so sweaty and wet and hot, yes. and it's like you are all like a beating heart together. And I just think those those experiences must be just so incredible. And that's the, those are the kind of experiences as performers that we try to get into. You know, try to I get. I can imagine that theater feels the same way. It is like a little like you're in the womb, or you're in a heart. You're in. I used to say that what was special about playing shows is that I would when I would go out to say the back of the club outside and be like we're just this group of people in this little room in this town and but inside here is this full universe happening like for yeah. two hours you know yeah. what i mean it's a collective How, conscience like everybody just kind of so melts amazing. together yeah yeah and you can it's like diving into a pool like you're it, it kind of made it easier i'm like well i'm in it we're yeah. all in it because those shows were not you you separately from the audience and they're looking at you it was just like you know like you could literally see especially that there's a the show of rock candy out on YouTube where it's like there's the show was the, the um, stage diving and then us. And sometimes we would become second. It's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Like, wait, wait which, show, which show is this now? Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, that's what I like about stand-up comedy is it's such a conversation with the audience. Oh my God. Well, you know we, I mean? I not wanna... that not that I want them to talk, <laughs> no, no, no. but it is a conversation that goes on. Yeah. You, if you can make it work for you, like, yeah, <laughs> well, that's, we touched base about that. When I was on your podcast about like, I have a real reverence for comedians and that's, I like the podcast I listen to. I kind of primarily are comedians like mm -hmm. David Spade and Dana Carvey have one. Oh and I've been God, they're listening. So good. Oh, they're so good. And I, I just love, love the conversation between I love the conversation between comedians because they're talking about craft or the things they've made and the nature of those things or the shit they have to put up with. And we kind of, we kind of talked about that. So I'd love to, I know as we segue like into your comedy, like. Mm -hmm. I started doing comedy. I lived across the street from the comedy store. My friend, the guy that I had moved to uh, Chicago with actually, he was now out in LA. I was out in LA and he was like, let's go over to the comedy store and do some comedy. And Comedy store is the, you know, is the pinnacle of comedy, stand-up yeah. comedy in the world. And uh, it is the, I say it's the vortex of comedy, the swirling, <laughs> sucking vortex of despair. No, it's uh, it's it's like, a, it's, Sometimes. you feel it when you're in there. You feel it. You know, even some people say it's haunted. Oh, God, um, I imagine. Yeah. And so he said, let's go over there and do some stand-up comedy. And, I, and so I went over there with him. You put your name in a hat and they put your name on the wall. If, and maybe if you get in, you're like on the list. And I lived across the street so I could go home and like watch TV and then come back. But um, we, we uh, you know, st that's when I started doing it. And I was just doing it as a lark, sort of. I didn't, you know, I, I think I kind of considered myself a very serious actor, which was a mistake because <laughs> I'm not really that. And I um, and at the time I was like going out for these roles and not getting them and um, because I didn't understand my true nature, which was myth club and not being yeah. serious, perfect man. Yeah. And I had a look that they, you know, was kind of leading man or whatever. And so I was just getting put in the wrong place. Interesting. And, and I felt like really inadequate, like I wasn't enough, you know, the usual oh, kind of feeling. feeling. 
but doing stand-up was like really freeing and uh kevin and i would go over there and i wouldn't even i'd have material but then i didn't even say it on stage like i'd just say the other stuff and it was such a short period of time but i felt a super freedom to that and we both let it go at some point because he and i had like a big falling out for a while over um the internet some internet business we were doing Uh which is another story but we had a major falling out and then we just didn't i just didn't do it anymore and then it wasn't later till later on in my life where i was feeling really lost yeah. Because uh, Los Angeles is difficult sometimes. Oh, I can't even people. imagine. For me, it was profoundly difficult. Yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's more difficult for some people, whatever. It was for me difficult. Oh, no, I get it. Yeah. And, uh, and also being from Seattle doesn't, it's not a real Seattle person. Any place. T- anytime I was in LA, <laughs> it's the most lonely I've ever felt. Yeah. Like just so, out of fish out of water. I don't know. Yeah. And the values felt different, everything. But I, at some point when I was really in the deepest, darkest place, I um, found stand-up comedy again. I went and saw a friend of mine who was doing comedy from CalArts, and then she introduced me to this friend, Cynthia Levine, who's a stand-up comedian who's been, she's been doing it for decades and decades. And she was like, she could teach you how to do it. So I started working with her and I started doing the clubs. And it was such a revelation for me because um, I could perform. I didn't have to ask anybody's permission. I didn't have to audition for anybody. I just had to go out there and do it. And it was all on me. It was just me and a microphone. And it just yeah. felt so good. And also you write your own material. Plus you can rehearse it and do it however you want. It's all you. You can <laughs> okay. reinvent it if you want. Yeah. You, can, you can try and go for no laughs if you want. You can do whatever you want. And uh, that's been a just a really freeing thing for me i guess did you ever think of doing like the groundlings and things like that the improv i did some ucb like you know upstate citizens brigade yeah i i you know when i was in chicago there was so much improv going on and i probably if i didn't see myself as such a serious actor i probably would have gone over to second city my friend kevin did he trained under del close who was the guru oh. of of uh, improv and anybody you talk to studied with this guy um yeah. but he he um but I didn't do it because I was like, I'm a serious theater actor. And I think part of that is I got that from the University of Washington. Right. They were like, look, you got to be serious. And this is what you got to do. Uh-huh. And it's really hard. And nobody's going to yeah. make it. And no one ever does. And you're just stuck. And, that, and Thank so you. Just, just was in that kind of blinders of like, I really want to be a serious theater actor. And only theater, you know, not a TV, not movies for a while there. That's so and punk uh, rock. Like that attitude yeah, is so totally. punk rock. Yeah, you're going to sell out. <laughs> yeah, you're going to sell out, right. So uh, there was that whole sellout. Here I am in, in LA going, I don't want to be a sellout, which is just yeah. a horrible <laughs> idea. That's um, going to work out great. Yeah. That's going to be good for you. You're going to enjoy that. You're going to enjoy uh, yeah. doing a lot of uh, menial labor. Um, uh, so, yeah. So I, I, that stand up for me just was like, I don't know, like a gift from God. I get it. Just the way you're saying, it's like, you could own it. You could do whatever you want. You like, there's autonomy in it. Maybe Mm. you, you know, like that's attractive. Just having that, like I either succeed or fail. It's on me. That's, that could be scary or that could be really liberating. Like, great. The other thing I did, the other thing I did that was really helpful was I had one of the first podcasts or first early podcasts. It was yeah. called Fat Free Film, and I interviewed filmmakers. 
So yeah, it's, it was called fat free film. Cause at the time, like independent filmmaking, we were like trying to figure, trying to cut the fat from our budgets, you know, that was our idea. <laughs> and so, uh, we interviewed all these filmmakers cause I didn't really learn how to make films. And I found out, Oh, you have to kind of make your own stuff. You can't just be an actor. If you want to make films and make television or whatever, you have to like write it yourself and do it. Right. And um, I learned that from uh, Gary Marshall when I was in Chicago. He was, you know, he did Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days and all yeah. that stuff. And, and he said to me, you know, Joel, you got to write your own stuff and you got to put yourself in it. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, shit, I should have learned how to <laughs> write screenplays, I guess. So thank that, you, Gary Marshall. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, but yeah, so I decided I'd go do this podcast it was actually this guy asked me to do a, a vlog he was calling it okay and i oh, said wow. well i think we could do a podcast this is new thing you, you have to like make an rss feed and all this stuff and i was kind of, i'm kind of a computer geek and so i made the whole thing and we went around and interviewed people but we were able to interview such interesting people he ended I up bet. leaving this guy because he wanted to talk a lot about raw food his name's Dr. What? Jesse Rines. Yeah, he's a funny guy. He's like a Yale-educated, uh, intellectual, really neat guy. And we were doing this, but he was like, this is going to be about independent film and raw raw food. Oh, okay. So combo. we'd always talk yeah. to our guests As about both do. things, which doesn't really work. <laughs> um, but then um, then my wife, Kamala, who's an actress here, and she uh, and I started doing interviewing like more directing towards film. And we interviewed Peter Bogdanovich and and uh, Leonard oh, yeah. Nimoy and oh cool Trisha Arquette and all kinds of people because oh. and they were just really into her. it like they didn't know what it was yeah because well, it was I so would, new I mean I would imagine like when they know you know when you're talking to someone who actually is interested and has some knowledge of what they're doing like when you know at a certain level when do they get to talk like that about yeah. their craft if not amongst themselves but like a good smart conversation must feel very pleasurable that's the what i found out i yeah. found out that these people wanted to talk because they go on talk shows and they only have to they have like a little soundbite that they do yeah uh, and they're this is like not being done because podcasts were right nobody had iphones nobody had iphones so a podcast you had to like download it to your oh put, wow put on your ipod your, you know, ipod and yeah. then go running or whatever Those one of the, the good old days one Ryan, big, you know, I didn't even know that. Like, of course, you know that. <laughs> yeah, he knows. Yeah. One of the one of the big thing. I went to the Seattle Film Festival at one point, and I was like, I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to go to my hometown, and I'm going to interview all these people at the Seattle Film Festival. And I went up there, and nobody would interview with me. I was, I don't, I did oh. interview Beth Barrett, who runs the whole thing. That was cool. She's but nice. then I, yeah. she was super nice, but I was like really like feeling like out of sorts. Like it wasn't as easy as it had been, and I was sitting in a coffee shop. And there was this older guy there and he and I were talking about cats or something like that. And then, then he said, I got to go to a movie. And I was like, Oh, you're going to a movie. I didn't even know he was there for the film festival. And he's walking to the movie and I was like, Oh, I'm going to the same movie. And then all these people started coming up to him. And then I, you know, so then I was like, who is this guy? So I like Googled him on my trio. I think I had at the time um, <laughs> I Googled him and it was the guy who wrote, it was Stuart Stern who wrote rebel without a cause. Whoa. And he lived in Seattle. So he was, he won an Emmy. He wrote Sybil. He wrote, he cast, he would cast things. He'd be on the set and he, Paul Newman was his best friend and Joanne Woodward and all that stuff. And he got, I don't know, hurt or something 
emotionally, I think, because he's a very emotional, like uh, oh, wow. emotionally available person, really artist in the truest sense, that he left LA, just totally left and went to, moved to Seattle, worked for the Woodland Park Zoo. Oh my God. That's a good choice. That's yeah, a he, great he, choice. He, he took care of the gorillas. Oh, wow. oh my God. That's And he's cool. like really like friends with animals, this guy. Anyway, he, he started teaching screenplay, screenwriting and things like that up in Seattle. That, and they have the thing called the film school. But anyway, I happened to luck into meeting him. That's one of the best interviews that I ever did on that show. Oh, I can't even imagine. Because I asked him if he'd do it. And he's like, I don't know what that is, but let's, you know, okay, come over to my house. So I went over to his house, interviewed him. It actually regained my passion for acting. You know, I, I found yeah. it again. You know, I admire people. It's funny you bring somebody up because I was just talking to someone who has like left a while ago, years ago, left Seattle, like just disappeared, like mm -hmm. a w well-known musician. Right. And because they did what they needed to do. And I was like, I admire that. Yeah. Like I admire when someone goes and I'm done. And I'm going to go over here and pivot and do something completely different. But, you know, it's nurturing like that's on my mind lately a lot. And and there's either there's something, liber I guess, liberating my favorite word today, liberating mm -hmm. today about that just to say it's OK. Um, it's not giving up. It's not quitting. It's a, basically like no. And a full cut is kind of the freshest way to do it. Yeah. 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 That might be true. Sometimes that it's just time true. for something new. I mean, I've done that too many happened. times yeah. in my life uh, where I've <laughs> like totally left, you know? Yeah. And I, sometimes I think like lately, I'm kind of like, no, just keep, keep on the path. Just stick yeah. to it. Cause I'm in, I'm in the opposite <laughs> camp of that right now. Cause like Chicago, I just took off, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I was doing that podcast. I just stopped doing it, you know, yeah. for some reason. I don't know why. I think it's something somebody said or something, you know, or too many people said. Maybe about, like, just, what, what are you doing? You know, kind of thing. Well, people talk a lot about, like, especially in this day and age, about building something up and like consistency and all that. And I'm not, I, I think that makes sense. But mm -hmm. sometimes, but in my mind, I guess, because Ryan and I have st started and stopped with yeah. this podcast, but I think there's also like a true commitment to sort of life mm -hmm. and not the product. I'm not anti-product. I'm not anti-money. I'm not anti any of that, but I'm anti-beating the crap out of myself over it. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a good way just, to be. I don't think everything has to be big. Sometimes it's nice to have lots of little small things that you do yeah. good at, you know, and those are yeah. just as important. Yeah. Well, and the point of say this podcast is to get to have great conversations of which we're having. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Winning. Right. <laughs> winning. We're already winning. <laughs> I've you, won. Can, you know, I do feel that way. Yeah. And I know with my, Fat Free Film Podcast, I yeah, I would get an email here and there yeah. <laughs> from yeah. people saying, "Oh my God, I was I'm in this play." There's like this one guy, I think he was in Australia. He was like, "I'm in this play. I'm playing the guy who was the catcher. He caught the children in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Remember that guy? Who yes. Was He's like, I'm playing the actor who played that. You know, there's like a whole. He did a whole biography of this guy who was that actor, and I guess he was a dancer." And it's, a, it's a really interesting story, the guy who plays that. So he's like, I'm doing the play of that guy. And every, um, you know, before I go on stage, I listen to your fat free film. And it's very inspiring to me. That's everything. And that's yeah. it. That's it. 
I mean, that, that, you know, that's, that's all it takes. Yeah. That's the Even win. if I did it for years and that was the only person that I affected, that'd be great. Because they, I do this and I don't know if this, if it's something that you do, would your 16 year old self ever imagine that someone completely on the other side of the world would utilize something you created to help themselves? Yeah. Isn't that great? I, I would it, never have realized. I never would have thought that. Yeah winning like you don't need to like that that's the win that's the like the day before yesterday i got a message on facebook and this guy wrote me the story who grew up in a small town in brazil that didn't have the internet so mm -hmm. he literally laid out like how he came to know hammerbox and it was like one piece by piece never like the effort to find the music so you know like Finally, video games came and you would go to a shop, right? Like a cafe mm -hmm. to use computers. And he's like, I would, and you had to pay for that time. He's like, I would go pay for time to play the video game, not play the video game and just listen to Hammerbox. That's so awesome. And then I finally, you know, like the internet comes, I can hear you and see, and I've bought all even goodness, you know, and all this stuff. And so I just want you to know, like, I wanted to give you the story of how I found you. And he goes, and now I can find you. And now I'm messaging you. Yeah. So, of course, I messaged right back. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, this just made my day. Like, Isn't what a gift. And then he messages to his friend, you know, like he replies. But he's, he's like, I just got to talk to my favorite singer of all time. And I just, my head was just like. It's and I was so like, woohoo. That happened on our show <laughs> yeah. with uh I, I played a cover song, this guy in England who was covering a gas huffer song, like pan, pancakes yes. or hotcakes. And then, and, uh, and Matt was in the chat room. Matt Wright was in the chat yeah. room and that guy got on and they started talking to each other. And it was like the most exciting thing ever, you know, that the two of them were able to talk because this guy and, was a huge fan of gas huffer. That's so cool. And, and that's the lovely. Yeah. And then, then when you were on, he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I missed that. She's one of my favorites. She's, she's like, Hammerbox is one of my favorite bands. He's in England. He's, like, hugely influenced by the, the grunge period, and particularly wow. your band and Matt's band. So he was, like, so excited about that. And I just love that connection that happens. Oh, I had a thing, too, with um, when, it, when, you were, when I was researching you, I always had this story about how I went to um, uh, George Washington, to, to the Gorge, to see um, Stevie Ray Vaughan mm -hmm. when I was in college. And I went and I saw and I met him. This is a kind of a long story where I went I on the grapevines and I knocked on his bus and they were like, who are you? And I was like, I'm here to see Steve. I think I said Steve. And then Steve Raymond came out and I talked to him for a while, said a bunch of awkward things. And then, then uh, I said, do you think that you could play um, Voodoo Child for me? Uh -huh. And he goes, well, I can't play it for you, but I can play it for everybody. And I was like, OK. And then I, he, he gave me a pick that has his yep. name on it. And then I went back out to. Uh, to the audience or whatever and i was talking to my friend i was like he's gonna play voodoo child i talked to stevie ray vaughn and he kind of didn't believe me <laughs> and then uh then the concert happened and when he played couldn't stand the weather it started pouring pouring down rain. he was out there playing his guitar just didn't even miss a beat and that was like amazing he was like such an incredible guitarist okay and then then they took their bow or whatever and then they came out and played <laughs> you know they play voodoo child so i was like you know it was very exciting for me kind of a pivotal moment in my life 
because it was just, I don't know, something was really incredible yeah. about it. And uh, then I was reading Mike McCready's uh, Wikipedia. Uh-huh. And he says, I had quit playing guitar. I had been down in Los Angeles for a long time. We were playing for a bunch of bartenders with his band. Yeah. I came back up. I went to the gorge to see Stevie Ray Bond. <gasps> and when the when he played Couldn't Stand the Weather, the sky opened up and it started pouring down rain. He said it was a wow. mystical experience. It was such an incredible experience that I decided I was going to pick up the guitar again. Wow. That's wow. Cool. And then Pearl Jam happened. Yeah. Essentially. <gasps> Some see, good energy at that show. Then. Yeah. Yeah, right. And it was like, but it was also for me, like, oh my God, that uh, that did happen. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't. Even, I sure wasn't sure it even happened. That's real. Thanks, Mike. Well, I'm like, gonna so see. Happy about that. Yeah. I'm totally gonna see Mike in a couple weeks or in a yeah. few weeks. I'm gonna fully tell him. I'm gonna ask him. Awesome. Be like, dude, we got to uh, talk yeah. about this. Yeah. But the magic. I since uh, when I was when I was like eight years old, I had this memory of looking in a mirror, going. I, you know, like I believe in magic, like magic is real and I want my eyes to be green. And I will say my eyes are greener. They're much oh greater. Than, yeah. But I That's am, so a, I'm a full believer in too. magic and those moments yeah. are everything. And they are, um, they are the magic. Cause what are the chances? Like just of any, you know, like meeting or coincidence or um, it could easily not happen. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I got, I went to that concert because somebody was like, hey, I'm going to the C.V. Ray Vaughan concert. Do you want to get in right. the car? And I'm like, I'm a huge yeah. C.V. Ray Vaughan fan. Okay, let's go. And we drove the two and a half hours or whatever it takes to get there. But I wouldn't, have, it was random. Yeah. That I had Magic that Magic is real. I think if people could pay attention to that more and appreciate more, their lives would be a lot more fun. Yeah. For sure. You know, like, and then you could be planning more magic and asking for it. <laughs> yeah or being open to the magic that shows up yes yeah. yes you know and appreciating I mean? it because a lot yeah. of times you, you take a left turn because you're like oh, i don't have time to do that or whatever it is no time for magic take, yeah you don't take the moment for the magic to occur yeah well and i think this world or our culture or this world really puts so much um emphasis on fame money all of that and it squashes a lot of artists who maybe don't you know become Pearl Jam size, you know, or yeah. as a big an actor or all. So somehow you're not a success. So when these moments of connection happen, that's equal in my yes. mind. Those moments of connection are so. You did a so job. Valuable. You did a good job. It connected. You win. You know, it's, it's. It's everything it, connecting. It's everything. Like yeah. Yeah. I, Cause I always sit there and go, I make myself say, oh, you, it's not a difficult, but to say, remember your 16 year old self. Now in the Tri-Cities, Eastern Washington State, sitting there going, is that 16-year-old thinking some kid in Brazil is going to fall in love with your voice and listen? No. no. <laughs> None of that's happening. You know? like, yeah. So just to remember the special, you know. Yeah. And how can you, you can't really plan for that to happen. You no. just have to follow your heart. Yeah. And it's to a, actually you follow your heart in the situation where maybe other people are saying, what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this? Well, you're in a band. What do you mean? You do, you looked right. in the rocket and you found a band. You're auditioning for. What do you mean you're in a band? <laughs> you know what I mean. I know. I kept waiting for that uh, blowback from my family, but it's. I guess one of the things I always say I liked about my mom is she never got in my way. That's so great. She never. Valuable. Yeah, she never said. She never said, "What are you doing?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, mom. I love you. Yeah, yeah. Well, now you're do you're you're an act. You do comedy, right? Because you're yeah. you're gonna play like the comedy store, right? 
Yeah, on the March 10th. I saw this, that. Uh, next yeah, Friday. Yeah, yeah, right around the corner. Yeah, I do comedy, stand-up comedy. I mean, because of the pandemic, I took it underground, started doing it on online, you know, with my show and stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I've been going out maybe like I do a big show like once a month or something like that. So the next one is next Ooh. Friday. But I'll, I think I'll be getting out more now that things seem to have calmed down a bit. Are you excited? I'm super excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to get out there, you know. Uh, and it's still great to have an actual audience and be, you know, I mean, one that is you can hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can hear oh and see. God, yeah, yeah. You know? It seems like stand-up comedy online would be hard, like streaming, because <gasps> yeah. you have so no response. Just that's silence. why I started lunch yeah. therapy was because they had a bunch of Zoom ones where you'd go and there'd be like a bunch of boxes and everybody would do their stand-up comedy, and I did oh. a couple of those, and uh, it just was so alienating. Not to say that there weren't good ones. There were some good ones out there, and there probably still are today. But my, um, the, the guy that the promoter, the, who's also, um, um, from Seattle, the promoter down here that used to do a lot of, um, comedy shows around here. Um, he, he made this, he got on this app and in the app, it was like some, there were supposedly millions of people watching you, but I don't think it was true. <laughs> you know, it was like some weird app and you were supposed to do stand up comedy and put your phone over here. Uh -huh. And, um, and Jimmy Shin is the guy's name. Who's the, the promoter. He's like, did a lot of great things for me as a stand up, And I, I love doing his shows and he's really wonderful. So he was trying to find another way we could do shows. Right. But this was just, yeah. Made, made me feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you're talking, you're trying to do your standup, which doesn't Maybe. work on a phone. And then there's all these like, animated characters coming in and blowing no. up and people like making comments and there's money ding 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 but i don't think it was true he stopped doing it how distracting yeah so like, he stopped doing it after a while so i was like what am i you know how am i going to do it and so i just started doing stand-up to the straight to youtube and i do yeah. like a half an hour and it was just like this is going to be an exercise for me and right. whoever shows up can show up and then that show evolved i started doing fat free film type uh interviews on fridays yeah and then I, on Tuesdays, I do just like a variety show and it's right. mainly a way to connect with people and then also a way to inspire other people. And then another way to just keep myself well oiled, you know? Yeah. Cause you're prolific. Like, so I was on therapy, right? Therapy lunch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lunch therapy. Lunch therapy. Mm -hmm. And that was really fun. But like, I went to your website and like, you got your whole left side is of, of your nav. It's like so much stuff. Yeah. And. As a, I, I can only imagine as a, it just shows you're such a creative person. You know what I mean? And keep making the things and having the fun. You're doing yeah. that. Yeah. I try to do, you know, I try to come at things from as many angles as I can. Yeah. Because um, it's just smart business wise, I think. Not that I'm a good businessman. <laughs> I'm not trying not to learn yet. a little better about that. But you know <laughs> what I mean? Like I try and do, I do the stand-up comedy and I perform that way, but then I'm auditioning, you know, the traditional auditioning way. And then I'm in an acting class with the, one of the great acting teachers of, of our time, Ivana Chubik. And uh -huh. I do, and I'm just doing comedy in there. Like that. I'm so happy right now because nice. she, somehow I got together with her. She, I interviewed her on my show. And she's trained like Jim Carrey and uh, all oh, kinds of different people and Charlize Theron and Brad Pitt and all kinds of people, but, and people that are Aubrey Plaza and stuff. Yeah. So she knows, she, she knows her comedy, she knows her acting, but she was like, I'm just going to give you 
uh, comedy scene after comedy scene after comedy scene. And we're just having a blast in there. I'm doing all the great comedy scenes <laughs> from Monty Python to Cable Guy, you know? Oh, sweet. And it's fun too, because a lot of the people in that class are like younger than I am. So they, some of them haven't seen Monty Python. They oh haven't seen God. some of this stuff, you know? Exactly. It's, it's like new. Like they're like, did you make that up? And I'm like, no, this is no, Monty just, Python. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's all mine. <laughs> get on the YouTube and start laughing. <laughs> so you live in LA. Yeah. You live in yeah. LA. How is LA for you now? Now that like you've been there a while and you're doing some things you love. Yeah. One of the things I've learned, well, I've lived here for a while now is um, you have to build a community. This is a place where you have to build a community and you have to build a community of people that support you. And I don't mean financially. <laughs> I mean, they're not going to say weird shit to you. That's going to stick yeah. in your head Yes. Um, because you need to keep it kind of clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you need to also be, my big mantra this year is expansion because I feel like there's limitations I give myself. Oh yeah. You know, like, yes. You know what I'm talking about? I do. So I'm trying to remove those limitations and maybe fall on my face a lot. Maybe. Yeah. Because those limitations are there to protect me, I think. Until they don't. Until, but they're not protecting me. Yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. protecting maybe my ego or something, but usually they're set way back so that they need to be pushed out yeah. those boundaries of creativity and about what you can do. Good for you. You know, so that's just my mantra. I hope it happens. No, good for <laughs> you. I tell myself just, you know, are you scared? I, I've always thought if I'm scared, I'm probably doing the right thing. Unless it's like, you know, something dangerous, like jumping off a building or something. But if I'm doing something professionally or something, uh, some kind of performing that I'm scared about, probably in the right place. If I'm not scared, it's probably, I'm not pushing myself enough. But I think that I got to go beyond that boundary. I appreciate that. Because I think it's easy um, and, and not necessarily wrong for everybody, but like, it's easy to sit down. Um, especially as we're getting older to be like, well, I'm going to sit down, maybe I'm, you know, I'm going to have a good life. You know what I mean? Like, so I'll just yeah. chill out a little bit. Um, and, and that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong. Totally fine. Totally Simple fine. life is yeah. wonderful as well. And, um, and some of those, you know, there's great lessons in that, like being very present and all of that, but it's easy. I feel like to sit down sometimes and it's harder to get back up and say like, try something or, um, make something or, you know, whatever it is, because I don't know about you, but like the getting up can be the hardest because you're getting up with all the stories on top of you. And you have to really be persistent with yourself as you're wading through that, as you're getting up, right? Like you think about all the stories that all of us carry, you know, like, like you'd write your best songs early on. And then later on, you, you know, that's not necessarily true. (laughs) Yeah, I, I have a lot of friends who are retiring right now. And I feel like I'm just getting started. You know, well, the whole idea that like only good things can happen when you're young or at a certain time yeah. and then it ends, like that's just yeah. not true. I mean, as you get older, it's more stories, it's more um, experience, it's the the ability to make something amazing is always, always um, there. But you know, out in the world, there's other stories. But other people have different yeah. um, viewpoints on things like that, and they'll tell you it as if it's fact. Oh, God, I hate that. You know what I mean? Have you ever yes. met those people that just oh, tell you yeah. something as if it's fact? And you're just like, yeah. like, oh, you know, you can't you can't get make it in the film industry unless you're 20. I hate you know, that. Stuff like that. And they say it like it's true because that's what they're telling themselves. Yeah. It's oh, true to them. And that's, yeah. you know, that's their problem. 
Yeah. I, there's so many stories and biographies I've read with musicians, um, male and female, but just some female ones where people are just out and out saying like, oh, you're not good at this. And they're like yeah. award-winning like songwriters, like just someone will just out and out tell you like, oh yeah, you're not good at this. Or yeah, you can never do this. And I was like, got a pop voice. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> God forbid. It's horrific. It makes me really mad. It makes me mad. That's infuriating. What, ah, what kind of crazy bullshit is that? And, but all these industries, art industries are chock full of that. Um, and they're difficult. It's full of wonderful things too, but it, that's one thing I tell myself. I'm like, or I would tell 16 year old stuff. I'm like, you don't want to know what that all entails. You know what I mean? Like that industry, you're choosing this industry. Yeah. Cause I certainly didn't have this conversation with myself ahead of time going, I'm going to go be in the music industry. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> is that a good choice? You know, as yeah. opposed to like maybe a different industry that wouldn't be as like wily or, you know, nasty or have potential for all these things. Like, oh my um, God, yeah. The industry so, that I'm in with the, with the acting too, it's like, oh, it's really like, can't imagine you know, being like, like somebody who is like a raw nerve <laughs> and yes. then, then being put in a room with people who are like super corporate and they're like very, you know, put this in a box kind of people. It's really hard to kind of marry the two. You have to almost like, you have to give yourself practices to yeah. get into the mode that, that, that works best for that situation. And a lot of times like an audition situation, an audition situation is completely different than uh, being on the set and acting. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. they're two totally different things and nobody tells you that. So you have to kind of find out and you have to behave differently in those yes. situations. Otherwise, you're just not going to work. I can also see what you're saying, you know, like doubly see why having your inner circle be safe and actually supportive counts so much. Like, yeah. um, there's, I really love, uh, Julia Cameron's like the artist way her book. And she just mm -hmm. talks about when you're creating something new, the importance of never showing it to like the wrong people when you're not ready, like you're just serving it up for, uh, bad so things. Don't do yeah. it. You know? Yeah. Um, no, I, I can absolutely see that for creative minds. And I think uh, authentic, authentic people as well. That's one thing in coaching that I talk a lot about is um, sovereignty, you know, uh, authenticity, but like the importance of understanding you get to do what is best for you it, so that you can go do all the things you're capable of doing and how important that is. Like an authentic soul is extremely valuable in this world and is the first to get the shit kicked out of it. <laughs> like, yeah. You got to, you got to get ready for like, I might not be like everybody else. I might, I probably do a unique thing because we're all so 110% unique. Right. Yeah. But yeah. gearing up for that being okay and being able to navigate that and move forward, um, which includes the knowledge of make sure your circle is a safe circle you know, mm -hmm. it, it supports you. Mm -hmm. Just how valuable that is. Super valuable. It's also yeah. valuable to know that you're not, like you say, you're not like everyone else. So you can't follow their rules. Yes. Absolutely. Because yeah. a lot of times, especially comedians, comedians will tell each other the craziest shit. And I hear it. I hear them telling each other. And they're all, and most comedians are just kind of learning from experience. So they're, yeah. they're just a sponge. And like, yeah. there'll be a comedian that says, no, a, a, a real comedian holds the microphone. No, you know, you can never put it in the stand, which is so wrong because lots of comedians, especially ones who do a lot of act outs, they put it in the stand. 
And so you just hear that crap over and over, or people, you know, they're just giving you these rules that are not rules. And that's one of the things I'm talking about, about having these boundaries about what people say. Like one of the things Mm -hmm. of being a comedian is you do like a six minute set and then you do a 12 minute set and then you do a half hour set. And there's like this whole thing. And yes, that's the way the business works, but who's to say you can't just rent a space and do an hour. Right. You know, and maybe it's not punchline, 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 punchline. Maybe it's deeper than that. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, maybe there's a laugh every five minutes, even maybe it's a one man (laughs) show. I don't know what it is, but Mm -hmm. you can't go into it saying you can't do that. You can't do that to yourself. Exactly. I mean, being able to pivot like that and take, you know, like own, like when someone says you can't. Yeah. To say like, well, no, I can, you know, like it, cause it, all industries have a game that they play, right? Like, so, you know, in order to get somewhere like there's that game and that game or yeah. whatever, if that game's not working in my favor, that doesn't mean I stop. I can go do something completely outside the game, their game, I should say, and maybe it doesn't hold power or mm-hmm. no one's coming. It will when it succeeds, you know, yeah, but it will. Like, and then it'll be the thing yeah. that everybody wants you to do now. Now yeah. that's the way to do it. But you can't tell me I can't. You can't tell me. I yeah. Can't. And, and you know what? You suffer the consequences too. Like maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe you, you know, run out of space. Nobody shows up. Maybe. But, you know, it's up to you to, to make those decisions and really yeah. get out there and put your ass on the line. You got to try it out because you never yeah. know. You know, you want to yeah. be the person that they make the rule up about in the future. They're like, you got to do it this way because Ooh. it worked for him. Every yeah. single yeah. I love that. Yeah. Every, yeah. It's so true. Yeah. Well, if it's a choice between like standing still and doing nothing or doing like the, you got a simple choice. It's not, <laughs> it's pretty easy. It's like <laughs> I have met so many people in my life along the way that wouldn't allow themselves to do anything. Wow. You know what I mean? Yes. Were, like, like I went and did a show in Lithuania where I was like, um, wow. Yeah. It was like a, it was a, uh, the new adventures of Robin Hood. It was like Xena, you know, like one of those kind of shows, you know, oh, that's awesome. and they sent me over there and it was really weird. Like I had given them my headshot a year before and it was like a year went by and they were like, can you go to Lithuania tomorrow? And I was like, yes. And I found, myself, nowhere. I found myself like in the Frankfurt airport with no money in my pockets, just going, what am I doing? <laughs> But it turned out to be a great experience. It was this show and it was, uh, it was like on, I don't know, like TNT or something like that at the time. That's awesome. And I, I was basically an extra for most of the thing, but every once in a while they give you a part and then they gave me like a guest role, which I wasn't booking at home. Oh. And, uh, and so it was just a great experience. But yeah. I, when I came back, they said, you know, who can, can you send some of your friends next year? Cause we want to have good actors like you or whatever. And so I talked to friends of mine and I'd be like, Hey, you want to go to Lithuania for three months and shoot the show? And they turned it down. Oh, and I was it's like, what adventure. do you, because it wasn't good enough for them. So They're lost. it was like, um, oh, that's just like a Xena show or whatever. Well, you know, I mean, there was another show at the time. Heath Ledger was in that one. So, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I mean, people's perceptions of things. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like if they're not doing anything, I'm like, well, you could sit here and do nothing. Yeah, like sit here this summer and do nothing. Keep energy going. Like I just yeah. the whole game of people telling you like you can't do something because it's perceived wrong means it's like they're paralyzing you. Like, oh, you want to be able to succeed on this path. So you need to be seen a certain way. I'm like, that's a little, that's a nasty little paralyzer right there. Like, so if I, so I can't go do anything else because I'll mess up this one road you said I 
maybe yeah. can have. Because for some reason, you know the road. And, yeah, and there's only one way things and happen. There's only one road there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But why do you know that? And why do you think you know well, that? Think of all so the things that have been changed over the time you know, yes. that we've been alive that have mm -hmm. just completely changed. And truth is, a lot of success is is talent, but it's also luck, right? No one's yeah. in control, you know, like you could certainly try and do manifestation and all of that, like, um, but you, there's so much you're not in control of. So you got to, at some point decide, am I going to live or am I going to like sit around and wait yeah. for maybe, or buy into this thing or this idea? I just think that's dangerous. I just think about yeah. the summer that I was going to go to Germany and learn German and working like a TV repair shop for some family. And I, I got afraid at the last minute and decided not to and told the people, nope, I'm not coming. And that summer I worked um, in a car lot <laughs> on Lake City Way. No. Hellish summer of my life. <laughs> I think that still oh holds true working in a oh car lot. Lake City. I learned no German. I didn't do anything. I was just there on Lake City Way working in a car lot all summer. That's the worst. And the, you know, like the little, I mean, you can see in your timeline, like all the adventures you've had, like that's all yeah. great winning. Like I, there's no problem in there. Like this has been an amazing experiences you've had. That's so wild. My son's really in, he's hell bent on learning German and wants to go to Germany. Oh, yeah. um, and <laughs> he's 15, he'll be 15 this month. Um, but like, but just, um, I'm fascinated. It just reminds me like it's a way of living too, to be able to just like take an adventure, take an adventure. It's not your standard way of doing mm -hmm. things. But if you're like that, like you are, I'm, I'm like that where I'm sort of like, wow, I want my life to be filled with adventures. Yeah. And so, um, and I'll take care of myself. I'll be fine. I remember my grandfather was from Sweden mm. and we went for two weeks to go visit. Uh, he was, he was, grew up in Mora, which is north. It's actually by like sort of Santa's, whatever, in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And we went and it, I'd never been to Sweden. It was amazing to meet relatives. Um, it was beautiful. And I just, and I'd spent a year in France for a year. Like I've done these things and I obviously lived a uh, unusual, not vagabondy life, but like, you know, other things. Mm -hmm. I like adventure. So when we got, we were had, kind of winding down the trip, I remember saying to my mom, like, <laughs> this is the one time she was sort of like, ah, I can't take it. Um, I was like, maybe I'll stay here, go to school. Cause you can go to, you know, like you can yeah. join, learn Swedish and be able to talk to my relatives in Swedish and I'll know Swedish. Like I speak French, English, and then I could add Swedish to it. Like that just sounded amazing to me. And yeah. she only a couple of times in my life did this, but she looked at me and she's like, oh, Carrie. <laughs> And I, and she didn't say anything else. And I was like, what, like, what, what? And she never said what, like, what, what is your problem? She didn't say like, you need to settle down or any of that. She never said any of that, but the, that plan really bothered her. Um, yeah. But the joke is, and you'll appreciate this, Joel. So instead of doing that, I went home and the boyfriend I had at the time picked me up drunk, broke up with me. Then told me he had slept with somebody else when we got home and moved out. And I was like, oh. thank, thank God I didn't stay in Sweden. Thank yeah. God yeah. learned a language. These and are I, the lessons we learned I love early that guy. On. Luck, yeah. luckily, luckily, we learned those lessons early on. But it's the same thing where you're like, okay, well, 
don't not do that again. Like, don't, yeah, like, right. I think I probably learned that lesson. Like, yeah. so next time I'm going to jump. The next summer, yeah. next summer I went up to Alaska and worked in a cannery. But it was yeah. only because like my friend got into it and he's and I was like, I got to be doing that too. I don't want to work in a car lot again. <laughs> yeah. So I got but myself Alaska, in there. What adventure is that? That's amazing. That, that would be amazing. Adventure. Yeah. Oh, it was amazing. It was a lot of work, oh, but it was like, God. like nothing else, you know? <laughs> well, okay. So Joel, what are you doing now? What, what do you want to tell the people about? Like you have a website that has so much fun stuff in it, mm-hmm. but like you're doing comedy, your consulate. What's next? What are you doing? Okay. So I want to tell, so I'm continuing on uh, lunch therapy, which is happening Tuesdays and Fridays at noon live. And then it's also the, you know, you can go there anytime and watch videos and there's all kinds of fun stuff there. I'm doing, I'm at the comedy store on March 10th. Um, the, uh, the other thing is my wife and I made a movie called Equal Means Equal. It's about the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. And, oh, which cool, was, yeah. was ratified now. I mean, since the movie was made, it has now been ratified by all the states, but they won't put it in the Constitution. Women are not in the Constitution. Oh, um, yeah. They're having yeah. hearings about it. For some reason, they will not put it in the Constitution. So um, we're still working for that day when <laughs> women are in the Constitution. Um, so that's the oh, other yeah. thing. That, yeah, my, uh, my wife actually got arrested the other day because she oh. went to Washington, D.C. To the, to the hearing. Oh wow! And it was there was so much BS going on in there about in this hearing imagine. that she stood up and started saying something. They took in her this away. Day and age, I Good can't even her. imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, her. so that that's what's going on. And then you know, I'm really making a push for my acting career. I really am gonna. I like, love it. So I've got you know agents and all that stuff and headshots and and yes, uh, yes. I'm just working towards that, towards getting myself some jobs because what I have been working full-time jobs my entire life yeah um you know whether they be bugs bunny or or whatever um but i would like to actually make a living as an actor and i know that people do yeah so this yeah. is my one of my big goals now is to like turn this into something that is more um it. lucrative so right. that i don't have to yeah you know you gotta manifest it energy. it could happen so i'm manifesting that yeah. right now right here Call me. I love to talk about manifesting. Yes. I think that's wonderful. And people can find you on Facebook. Yep. Um, They can also find me on YouTube at at Joel Marshall. It's pretty easy. Instagram. Your website. Yeah. JoelMarshall.com. Are you on Instagram? Yes. It's um, Joel Marshall Official. Official. It's a lot of lunch therapy ads, though. (laughs) I love. (laughs) Do you do? Okay, this is annoying. Maybe annoying, but like, do you do TikTok? I do, but very little. Very few TikTok. TikTok's a weird thing. Yes, it's it's a little bit crazy, but um, I just love talking to you, Joel. I am determined to stay in touch. Um, I love talking to you on your podcast, and I just thank you so much. This has also been wonderful. It's this is what I like about doing this podcast is talking to somebody like yourself. Thank you very much for having me. It's such an honor to be on your show. Oh, thank you. We appreciate it. Yeah, It's nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. And hopefully we can get together and manifest sometime soon. Do it. Let's do it. It's not a secret. It's not a secret. It's not a secret. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing secret about it. (laughs) I I know. All right. Well, take care and we will talk soon. Thanks, everybody. 